Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading this episode of The Agile Wire. Jeff and I are getting caught up on our backlog of recordings, and this was actually our first one of the new year. This time around, we got Bradley back in for another great conversation. There's lots of references in this episode, and we have all of them up in the show notes on the site. If nothing else, make Bradley happy and search for Jeff Bridges' Five Wet Monkeys on YouTube. Enjoy. Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. Jeff always does this. All right, first podcast of the new year. So, Bradley, we have Bradley Clerken on again, good friend of the podcast. Uh, Bradley, we were just talking before we started recording about efficiency and effectiveness and the difference between those two. So um, I want to start off like how do you when you have to talk to people because you talk to a lot of different leaders and a lot of different organizations as you come in and and you're trying to help them, you know, maybe think about different approaches to um, how they approach infrastructure, um, IT infrastructure. How do you get them to stop? Because they probably traditionally think about very they want their systems to be very efficient. Um, but how do you get them to start thinking about effective solutions and how do you, how do you talk about that? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad this is the new year because I've now spent, you know, two weeks talking to all my relatives about what I do and trying to take it into simple terms. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of ready to go at least talking in, in simplistic terms and we can dive in. Um, but I think, you know, what I, what I start with a lot of times is just helping, um, IT, whether it's, you know, infrastructure and ops, or it could be you know, CIO level, et cetera, um, try to understand that what they've really built over the last 30 years is a system focused on efficiency, right? We, you know, we, 30 years ago, the differentiating, and I know, you know, a lot of your audience already knows this, but um, I'm surprised at how many IT leaders, you know, are still kind of coming to, you know, general understanding about this, that, um, you know, what was the differentiating factor 30 years ago was just having the software, right? Being yeah, to... it was, it was, it wasn't so much. It was just that you had technology and you took a paper process and you made it into an electronic process. And now you could actually do something with the data and like, right. It could just got a lot easier. Right. So that was what they, and that was efficiency, right? Like you got a lot of efficiency from that um, and just sped up the whole entire process. Well, and, and from a, yeah. And from an infrastructure and ops perspective, what you were looking to do is say like, okay, what are what are we actually trying to accomplish? Well, we're taking software that someone else built, you know, IBM or whoever it is. Maybe it's on a mainframe, maybe it's on a virtual machine, maybe it's on a physical server, and we're trying to get that set up and integrated. And if we need to customize it, right, as as efficiently as possible. And it, and initially, I'm sure there was some focus on speed, but as you really look at um, you know your partners for the speed of new features, right? So you're going to an IBM and saying like, hey, I need this new awesome capability that your competitor has, can you get it into your software? And so they'll give you an update to the package and you need to get it out to your systems and, and roll it out, right? And so you were trying to do that for the least amount of money and in a controlled way as possible and really focus on like yeah, the efficiency of it, right? Because you made this upfront purchase and now you're trying to maximize your ROI. And they did that for 30 years, you know? That, I mean, that's fundamentally what we were doing. Um, you know, and this is where like ITIL came out, right? We needed to do this in a way that wouldn't cause, you know, a lot of human error and crashes and, and problems to the system. Um, obviously, there was also kind of standard services that the business was expecting higher level SLAs around. So we saw like service management come out and start to think about things as like standard service requests. Uh, but again, it was always under underneath it all about how do we do this in an efficient way because we made an upfront purchase. You know, the speed <laughs> was from my partners, right? So if my partners couldn't provide me with the capabilities I needed, right, that's on them, right? That their delivery velocity or their ability to deliver value to the market was really on them. And I consume, I was the consumer of that. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what we focus on for 30 years. And now, right, what's happening is the, the business is saying, well, you know, if I can buy something, I, I heard this quote, and I'm definitely, I might butcher it, um, similar to how you may have butchered uh, the uh, Jeff Bridges, the president, the monkeys, the wet monkeys. Man, you, I mean, I listened to that a few weeks ago and you guys did a horrible job. And hopefully everyone went and watched it because it's one of my favorite uh, videos. Actually, I have been talking to CIOs about this concept and brought that video up. It's, it's that impactful. So 
Um, I would recommend if you just relied on your guys' interpretation of it to go to go to go watch it. We'll um, we'll definitely include the Jeff Bridges version that you're referring to because I did the like the sciency version of it, but we'll we'll get the right version in the show yeah. notes this time. You need the you know they pounce on them and beat the shit out of them. You know that's like you know that's the thing that really gets people because they're not expecting that and then they're <laughs> laughing and having a good time. Um, Oh, now I lost my train of thought. All right, you're talking about a quote that you're going to butcher. Yes, like so I, look, I'm already starting uh, to butcher. But it was if if this software can be someone else's front office, right? So someone's selling that software to me, it shouldn't be in your back office, right? Uh, in other words, I shouldn't build it, right? So um, that was where most CIOs were at, and now the business is saying, well, sure, yeah, absolutely. Like we better have those table stakes stuff that should just be in our back office because we bought it from someone's front office, right? Um, I think I butchered that, but you get the general concept. If I can buy it from someone, get it deployed, right? If it's in SaaS, get that stood up. But the business is saying, okay, but that's not differentiating us anymore, right? And this is where, you know, the agile software, we all, we all know this, right? So, okay, now build software, right? Build me strategic applications. Uh, and unfortunately, a major part of the IT operating model that's built on efficiency tends to go, okay, how do I take what I've been doing, you know, service requests and, um, ITIL and you know standardized requests and all this stuff and how do I now do that but let them do software development right? Unfortunately, the underlying equation is wrong and that's what I help leaders understand is that the efficiency equation is not the governing equation of software that you build right. Instead, the governing equation is time to market right. We a lot of us understand this right, which to me is about effectiveness right. Are you effective at delivering something at the desired speed? Not are you efficient enough to justify, you know, ROI and, and, and long-term things like that? And so because of that, right, in, in a sense, it's not that you're completely taking what you did before and throwing it away, right? As some, like, you know, the strategic thinkers will tell you, like, oh, that's your old thing. Get rid of it. Now it's time for the new thing. The way we look at it is like, nope, that's going to continue, right? We still have mainframe systems. We still have, we're going to have virtual machines for a long time. We're going to have data centers for a long time. The cloud and everything you're hearing about is driven by this whole new operating model, but it's a new part of your operating model. It's not a rip and replace, right? So it's like the way I visualize it is that you've got about 50% of it solved and you're missing about 50% of it. And so the 50% that's solved is all based on that efficiency equation. And the 50% you're missing is all based on the effectiveness equation, time time to value, right? Yep. Now, I believe, and you know, we'll be onto something new in the future, but I believe that eventually the stuff we care about being effective right now, right, which would be you know, custom developed data and product applications, right, aren't going to be differentiators anymore, right? And it won't matter, right? And we won't care about how quickly I get slight changes to those things that I built 20 years ago to market, and I'll then shift to being efficiency focused on those things, but then maybe we're to AI or whatever the next thing is. And I apply efficiency equations and ways of working directly to that like desired outcome, right? Uh, I think, you know, we'll be doing tech for a long time, but, um, and I think that like, especially in the infrastructure and ops space, because they've been so focused on that efficiency area for so long, what I just said to them sometimes, I mean, I, I get like, you know, accused of talking, you know, like in, in a language no one understands, you know, they're like looking at me like they're completely lost. Um, but they need to not get lost, right? Because it's that equation that those two equations that should govern how they think about everything. And more importantly, a lot of times how they talk to the business and educate the business, right? Because the business doesn't a lot of times understand this either. They're just saying, hey, I can't buy this thing, right? Like uh, a lot of times we work with financial banks and financial services institutions who are buying you know, kind of their core platforms from someone like Fiserv or something like that. And they're saying like, hey, they give me a mobile app, right? But it doesn't do this thing that I think would be a really differentiating piece. And the service guys are going, well, yeah, we'll just wait till Fiserv comes out with it. And then we're ready to go. You put that request in, we'll get that thing upgraded and that thing will be in your mobile app. And they're saying, well, if I can get that out to market, obviously, like, you know, I, I'll be... Um, Good to go. And if a leader understood understood those equations, instead of saying like, oh, wait for us to get this into a standard service request, they would so say, great, I've got to get funding from you, right? I've got to get money. And these are the reasons why. We've got to do, you've got to have market analysis done to understand how much we can spend to go as fast as we can go. Um, all the equations that you would think of before, ROI and those kind of things, like aren't as important in the IT space anymore. We've got to think about time to market and kind of what's our limiter 
on how much we can spend to, to get to that point. And I think if an IT leader, you know, we keep hearing like, oh, the CIOs need a seat at the table, right? Or all this kind of cliche stuff from these books. Um, I think that that's actually what this is about, right? Is it's not that they like, they don't have a seat at the table. It's that they're not talking the right language, right? They're, they're, they're saying the wrong things. And so they don't get a seat at the table. And so instead, if they can start understanding the new equations, like there already is a seat waiting for them, right? That the business just is going to fill it with a shadow company or something like that. I think we've talked about before. So, um, I don't know. That was a rabbit hole. Does that make sense? Kind of what I, yeah, I think the first question that I start with with a lot of teams as I'm really leadership, um, when I'm starting an engagement is like, what do you want to optimize for in each product? when we're talking about products and what are your products let's define those things because i think that like you just like you were saying it's a different equation for different different types of products sometimes you know it it, this is a commodity thing we need just to be able to send out bills we need to get make sure we're getting paid like this is something that has been done for 30 years now using technology why should i build that custom you know what what advantages would that give me and so it's like, well, if it's not one of your core competencies, then don't. Like, then that's a great opportunity for a vending so, vended solution. But where it interfaces with a custom solution, know that you have a choke point there, and that you're not going to be able to respond to changes as effectively as you want because you're you're doing the efficiency play over here. But do you want effective solutions over here? Do you want differentiator? Do you want time to market? Do you want what is the thing that you want? Do you want to be is a customer service? Like, you want to be really responsive to your customers. Um, there's different things to, to optimize for and, and making that hard decision and saying, uh, what I get a lot is like, well, I want all of it. I'm like, well, you can't have all of it. You have to pick one or two. And at least we know what one and two are. And then we can say, yeah, three and four would be nice, but like one and two is what we're optimizing for. And we're going to plan a strategy around one and two. And then we're going to align around that and have our structures align around that, you know, our organizational structure, what we define our products to be. And so I think that's a really big right? thing. Exactly. The team structures. Cause we don't, we don't want to manage these dependencies and try to m- manage the strategy at this high level. If we don't have the teams working in that same way, if we're managing the teams for efficiency. So we want to be really good at Salesforce. We want to be really good at getting new cloud solutions out there. We want to be really good at the, d- the database and analytics and all these things, but to get really what we want out there is an integrated a dynamic solution that uses all these different components you can't organize that way. You have to kind of combine that into one product and say, here's what we're focused on and how do we, how do we solve problems um, in this space? And then, you know, make your, make your trade-offs where it makes sense to make trade-offs where you may want some efficiency. the analogy I like to use a lot of times is like, you know, we've worked with these financial institutions and sometimes they have lawyers that work for them. At least many of them do the big ones and we're building a new product. Maybe it's a new insurance product. And you have to make sure that, you know, all of your I's and are dotted and T's are crossed from a legal standpoint. Well, most of these products aren't going to put a lawyer on their team, right? Like not at least for a long period of time, that would be way too expensive. Your run rate for your team wouldn't make sense over the long term. But like, how do we manage that dependency if it's infrequent so that there's not a lot of wait time and and leg? So maybe those are one of those cases where it's like, yeah, we're going to make trade-offs here, but understanding why you're making the trade-off. And why some things might be painful when it gets to a certain point, then we need to reevaluate that. Um, I think is, is kind of the, the thing to go to look into there. Jeff, what are your thoughts on this? Bradley and I've been talking quite a bit. Do either of you two watch uh, Mr. Robot? I do not. Okay. Definitely. So Brad, Bradley will get this, this reference. I haven't seen the last, the latest season, but big fan of the, the first few. Anyway, it kind of, not necessary to understand the analogy here, though. In, in the show, there's there's this corporation called E Corp, and anytime in, in the very first episode, the dude, the main character of the show, says anybody, anytime somebody says E Corp, he does a search and replace in his brain and um, replaces it with Evil Corp. And so for the entire show, whenever somebody is talking about E Corp and he is in the in there, it's Evil Corp, and it's just, it's a really subtle thing. Um, but why I bring this up is when I'm thinking about efficiency and effectiveness, and correct me if you two have a different perspective on this, I think of efficiency as more leaning towards local optimization and effective more towards systems optimization. As in, we have a tendency to look at local efficiencies and try to optimize 
in, in subparts. But when we're thinking about effectiveness, we're really thinking or trying to lean towards how is this change affecting the overall impact and to what Jeff was just talking about, like, we need to decide what what is our one or two optimization goals of what we're going for. So maybe may right, maybe wrong. But to, to me, that's kind of always how I've looked at those two efficiency versus effectiveness is understanding what what truly are we trying to optimize for and effectiveness is going towards that optimization route versus efficiency where it has a tendency to go locally i think um i think maybe <laughs> um I, I the way i look at it um is like it, you're trying to optimize for one or the other, right? So like you can have a, a system built for efficiency. You know, one of the things before we started recording that we were talking about, right? Like initially got this idea. Uh, well, I, I mean, I got a lot of these ideas actually from the agile community, right? Because when kind of DevOps first started to come out and, you know, I started to get into this world, um, actually it was kind of like the, the agile community was like, yeah, what are your cloud DevOps guys? You know, like it was almost like, you know, it was not that we were pushed off, but it was like, that's not really what Agile is focused on yet. Um, now, obviously, you guys were never like that. And you guys were always very embracing of the fact that, like, we need to shift infrastructure and ops just as much as we need to shift um, software development. And that this change is about, like, the holistic value stream shift, right? And, and um, instituting this operating model uh, to, to develop software. Um, but when I first started to get into it, I, I tried to like, I wanted to find a way to bridge all of these concepts together because there really wasn't a lot of people out there saying like, it's, you know, we heard a lot of people saying, oh, it is the app dev transformation or a lot of people saying, oh no, we've got to change infrastructure and ops. You know, it was never like systematically need to change IT. And um, one of the articles that I, and I tried to find it before we um, did this, but I just, I could not find it. So it was, it was a long time ago. I'm, you, someone probably will be able to find it, but someone wrote an article about trying to explain efficiency and effectiveness as a system thinking kind of thing. And they use the example of shipping cargo, right? So for a system where you've built for efficiency, right? They used a cargo ship as an example. Now, this is not a local optimum, right? I mean, to ship cargo across the ocean, right? I'm optimizing holistically for unit cost of a container, right? And then everything surrounding that, whether it's the localized railroads, the container ports, every, the ship itself, you know, everything is built in a way to hopefully lower the costs that that I get uh, charged for shipping that container, right? And this whole system is built in a sense to not care about time to market as much, right? Because, you know, I'm shipping massive amounts of goods that have, uh, you know, maybe high demand, but huge high supply, right? And so if they sit in port for 30 days while the container ship fills up, that's a hundred percent good because I now can ship it for 10 cents versus, you know, if I wanted to be more effective and have an effective system, I might do what I need to do with sushi, right? <laughs> like I need to put that thing on a plane and that thing, thing needs to get to New York and it needs to get there today. Right. Mm -hmm. If you put sushi on a, you know, on a cargo ship, we'd be, well, I'm sure there is. That's probably the gas station sushi that got recalled a few weeks ago. But um, the point is, is that like, neither of those systems are like local or not local right? It's the governing equation. And, and then what they've done is they've taken local optimum and system optimum and said, okay, for that governing equation, how do we optimize for that? Um, or at least that's that's the general idea. So well, that's why I get it. Let me jump in real quick, just because I think words are important. So let me, let me, I did some Google foo here and uh, let me just read the actual definition of both of these words, because I think it's interesting what, what comes out in here. So efficient, achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort or expense. And I think that last part is, is important. So minimum wasted effort or expense inside of there. When we're thinking about the research and development area or the complex domain that we are in with IT work. So I think those, those may be two red flags in there, but let's, let's take a look at effective. Successful in producing a desired or intended result. And so for me, that's where I go back to what Jeff was talking about with like, you need to understand, like, what is your optimization goal? What's the one thing, even in the story you were just talking about there, Brad, like, do, do we fill up shipping containers and reduce our costs or the time critical customer delight, whatever that other thing that we're trying to shoot for? To me, effective is a clear and intended result that we are shooting for. And that's what we are going to optimize for versus efficiency, which we want to minimize the amount of wasted efforts and, and expense. So that's that's kind of where it goes in my mind, back to 
local optimization versus system. And inherent in system is you need to understand the intended result of the system in order to optimize for it. Sorry, Jeff, what were you going to say? Um, so I was just thinking of uh, kind of that analogy of, or you know, like a, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square, right? Efficient, effic- effectiveness, you can be efficient, but efficiency, you sometimes may not be effective, right? Like, um, so it kind of goes both directions. So I think we're saying we might always want an effective solution, but sometimes we want to focus on efficiency too. And sometimes we're not so concerned with efficiency because there's so much, let's say, revenue that's being made. We don't care about the cost as much or that's not our number one priority, right? And so sometimes that that does make a big difference um, and you have to know what you're optimizing for or you won't be able to make the right trade-offs. I think I'll add in kind of one more layer here, at least how I talk about it and view it, which is that like there's different states that you're in and they impact changes to efficiency and effectiveness, right? So if I'm, and and this is why it's important for leaders to understand, like maybe if you just take those two words out and you look at unit cost and return on investment, right? And that on, on one side, and then in a sense, time to market, time to value on the other side. Right. Like, and those two things, when you're instituting changes to people and process and tools, right, they have like, like there's like a sliding scale. Right. So there was a book um, called uh, Command and Control. This has nothing to do with Agile. It's actually about, uh, if you guys read this, I don't know if any. I'm smiling because I'm willing to bet it's a military book. (laughs) Yes. Of course it is. Come on, man. That's that's the only kind of books I read. Uh, but this was a really cool one. This is about like uh, during the Cold War and the rise of like nuclear arms and the system they put in place, right, to control these nuclear arms and like how close we were in so many circumstances to like you know like complete nuclear disaster. And there was we, one we literally that, dropped a hydrogen bomb on a farm in what was it North or South Carolina or something like that. Yep, and we also did one in the mountains, I think, in Europe where it was actually live. Like they had. It should have blown well, up. This one was live too. It should have. It should have decimated. Uh, sorry, I was just listening to stuff you should know. And they were talking about broken arrows and, oh man, mind boggling. Anyway, keep going, Bradley. Yes. And and a lot of that came from, and I, I believe, I think I got this right. I think it's McNamara who was like the secretary of defense or something like that. He had, a, it was either him or a general had this theory. And I don't think it's a theory. I think it's right that either something can, uh, a bomb can be safe or it can be effective, right? So uh, for every measure of safety, you have a chance of another failure, right? So because of that, and because you're in assured mutual destruction, and hopefully none of this applies to like IT further than what we're talking about. Hopefully we're never in assured mutual destruction between like infrastructure and ops and app dev. Uh, maybe we are, but anyways, um, the point was is that if you were in this strategy with Russia of or Soviet Union of a, a, you know assured mutual destruction, i.e., like if you launch, you know I'll launch two and we're both dead. Um, you needed to have the most effective bombs, and so that theory allowed them to remove all these safety mechanisms and say because we have these safety mechanisms, you know our bombs might not be effective. And so there was like in Europe, for example, like on tarmacs, there were like handheld nuclear devices stored in like armored lockers on the runways with no locks on the doors, no safeties on the triggers. Anyone could walk on that base, grab that nuclear bomb and, and launch it. Like that that's seriously where they were at, right? And um, you know, so this kind of like sliding scale, I, I kind of thought the same way but it wasn't all the time with efficiency and effectiveness or you know unit cost and time to market right but the way i look at it is it's only a sliding scale right where you're for every gain in effectiveness you lose some efficiency when you're making changes right so i'm putting in new processes so i'm i'm instituting a new way to build the system or i'm building a new application that i've never built before right i lose efficiency for every gain in effectiveness I make, right? It might cost me that much more to have another person on the team or or whatever it may be. But then once I've instituted that way of working and it's kind of like a standard way that I do things, um, those things in a sense aren't on that sliding scale anymore, right? Because I could do something like institute a new piece of automation that both increases my effectiveness, i.e. I'm able to deliver faster and for less cost, right? Now those things, so there's like, for whatever reason, and I haven't, I need to keep diving in because I'm sure there's a reason for this, like, you know, theory-wise and equation-wise, but it seems to be when we're instituting the operating model, like a whole new 
way of working, that that's where we're losing those efficiency gains because it's going to cost us that much more to do this. And we need to be okay with that for a little bit. And then eventually, if we decide we want to change things in how we work to be more efficient, we're going to lose some effectiveness until that's the way we work. And then we can you know, kind of manage it. And most of the stuff we do when we're not changing is risk mitigation, right? So either we're trying to prevent those things from sliding one way or another, right? Or just because of the risk mitigation we're doing, we might actually be positively impacting those, you know, then that's usually what you want to do. So that's like, and this is where people start to look at me like I'm, you know, speaking a foreign language. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the level I go down is, is when we're thinking about change, you need to be ready to go to the business and say like, this is going to cost us a whole lot more to institute this operating model. This isn't going to save us money. Right? We shouldn't look at it that way. And if you're applying, especially to infrastructure and ops, who for the last 30 years, everything they've done has had to been justified on ROI. You know, they couldn't get funding unless they could show the ROI. And what a like that's not appropriate when when your application development teams are saying like I need to get this thing out to market. But unfortunately, you know, it's kind of like that goes back to the the five wet monkeys, right? It's the way it's always been done around here, right? Infrastructure and ops justify their spend based on ROI. App Dev goes to the business and says, I got this brand new project, you know, I need funding for. And when those things are completely misaligned, right, you have this, you know, this, what it feels like someone optimizing for local uh, optimum, right? The services they deliver and the way they operate. And then the other group saying, well, I care about, you know, getting it to market and you have this big clash. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, kind of further where I take CIOs and, and leaders to, to help them understand like how they articulate to the business and to their teams that they haven't done anything wrong, but they need to do something new, right? Yeah. And I, I keep going back with organizations aligning around your real product, whether it's operations, infrastructure, um, app dev, whatever, people from the business that you need them to develop that product, like the closer you can get to organizing around value delivery instead of around managing people or efficiency, right? Because it's easier to manage a group of DBAs if somebody has some experience, they know the DBAs and they can come up with like, hey, this is how DBA should work. Um, a little harder to figure out a career plan for maybe certain skill sets that you don't know if you're aligned around more of a holistic product, like it might be harder. And and so like if you if you do that, then it starts to be a little, it's a little easier for me to say as a, as a leader of this product, like, yeah, you know, I want to get more things to market and it takes so long. What's our biggest, what's our bottleneck here? And it's like, oh, well, you know, it takes us days to spin up a server to get more, you know, capacity on a database or whatever it is. And like, if we just had this thing, we would have this extra availability. We could get things to market, you know, X times faster. Well, I'm going to slow down and producing business items to improve my IT capabilities or my infrastructure capabilities so that I can go faster in the future. But I need to be able to see that. And it's harder, I think, in larger organizations because of the way they're structured. I may want to invest in that over here on product A, but product B is just like, well, let product A invest in that. I'm going to invest in the business stuff and I'm just going to take advantage of all their you know, stuff over here in A. And well, then nobody wants to invest in infrastructure because you know, then that gets distributed to everybody and it's not, it's not, um, if I just wait, somebody else will take care of it. And then I can just worry about my own, my own things. Right. So I, I think that's part of the problem of like how, how people are even thinking of it, even as like, like it's an IT thing and we're splitting IT in these different, you know, compart compartments or departments. Um, if you think more of a product then it's like, well, I don't have enough people that know how know enough about Azure and that's going to make us go this much faster Then I need to hire people that can do this for me. And then I don't need to hire developers right now because that's not my bottleneck. And so I think it helps you take more of a systematic approach to it. Yeah. I think um, what I'd say to that is hundred percent agree. And I think that, you know, if you've got, infrastructure and operations and, and, and C-level leaders in, in IT like aligned to the things we just said, the next thing you have to slowly introduce them to is that the org structure and the team structure for an effectiveness model isn't going to be, like you said, the IT organization, right? It's going to be product aligned. You know, you're going to have, like we talked about this on the last uh, time I was here, like you might have a platform product team specifically dedicated to a given product that I'm building, you know, um, but I will also say that there is a, I kind of forewarn, like don't also then turn around and go, okay, cause this works real well when we product align into something we're building. Let's go to like our data center environment where we're still purchasing software from those vendors and let's create, you know, product aligned teams there. 
um, that's also a recipe, I believe, for disaster because that will be way too expensive, right? Like it, it'll like you'll be able to roll out things massively faster, right? Like you'll have updates coming from IBM and being deployed in seconds, but that's going to cost you ten million dollars to do, and the business is going to say, "Why did I spend ten million dollars on something that like no one really was requesting?" faster time to market for, right? Uh, which I think goes back to, you know, Molesky, what you were saying, which is like, I got to answer the why, right? Like for this specific system over here, like the data center where I'm, I'm deploying commercial off the shelf software, I'm not even doing that anymore. Now I'm just like kind of keeping the lights on, right? Is the, um, is the cliche. Uh, but if I'm keeping the lights on, then I need to build a system to keep the lights on. And the system that keeps the lights on is not one that puts in brand new fancy lights. You know, it's one that keeps the lights on for the lowest cost possible. You know, I don't need 10 janitors for redundancy, right? I, I need maybe one, two to cover the day shifts, right? So um, I don't know if that was maybe the, the, the best analogy, but the point is, is like, I have also seen some real disasters when, um, you know, let's say the company hires someone who is more product uh, and uh, product focused at, at, a, at an IT leadership perspective and they go, okay, all that efficiency side of my house, make it effective. And they don't even know they're saying this. And now we've got cross-functional teams, you know, with, you know, people who are waiting, you know, theoretically for their expertise to be used. And that's good, right, on one side, but bad on the other side. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but I, I've definitely seen a lot of failed initiatives when the first thing they do is try to shift the, or maybe even the second or whatever order, but they try to shift that data center focus and it just becomes really expensive. Um, and they're they're not able to actually point to any tangible outcome because they've already realized that outcome, right? They bought that software. That's not a competitive advantage. There is no more market to be gained by making that better, right? Um, that, in most circumstances. Want to to go back really quick to something you had mentioned earlier, Bradley? I just want to make sure that I, I understood what you were saying. Was so for let, let's just say generic DevOps. Um, not being able to or not needing to justify the ROI of what they're what they're doing or what they're producing. Did I catch that correctly? Um, I think the ROI is more complicated. So the I probably said it. I probably did say that, but um, let me retract that and restate it. So, like the ROI that they would normally calculate in infrastructure and ops is like um, how much am I? What's my run rate today? Right. And then if I do this thing, will I be spending less? Right. That That's like the basic thing that they could justify, because that's the only way they look at their finances. Right. It's a shared cost. It's a shared pool. And so they're saying whatever improvements I need to make need to be self-funded. Right. Which if you look at on the other side, if like I'm going towards more like DevOps platform teams that are aligned to products, their ROI that they would calculate would include things about like potential, you know, market share that that you know, like like value that's out there in the market that not be realized, and all the things that you guys talk about with your um, business metrics. Uh, sorry, I'm going to mm -hmm. butcher what it's called. EBM. Yep. Yeah. yeah EBM. Like, yeah. Yep. Yep. So we might be saying, hey, we need mean time to repair to go up because we know there's going to be some mistakes, and you know going on the old data center, that's going to take days. If we have a catastrophic issue over here in the cloud, that's going to take minutes to seconds to restore something. What's that worth to you? What's the risk factor, right? And so it might be different in different situations with different products. And we might have different focuses um, depending on, you know, what we want to optimize for, right? Yeah, yep, because if I'm in the data center, and that's a great example. So in the data center, uh, I might look at, like absolutely, IaaS, infrastructure as a service, and virtual machines, which is something that we do a lot on-prem, done in the cloud, the AWS and the Azure's and the Google of the world have figured out how to run that kind of infrastructure better than anyone has on-prem. And I will, you know, I'll stand up and get, you know, yelled at for saying this, but I don't think it's, I don't think I am anymore because everyone's realized it. That service, like AWS EC2, for example, is fantastic, right? It works way better than anything on-prem. It's way faster but it's massively more expensive, right? And so if if I'm on-prem and I'm sitting there and I've got like, let's say, um, you know, a, a system from IBM that manages my supply chain, right? And like the only thing I'm going to do with that for the foreseeable future is continue to take upgrades from IBM and deploy them onto that virtual machine, right? And that And I've got that down to a standard process that takes me, let's say 30 days of time. Right? So 30 days it takes me to get the update, 
get it rolled out. And I've got a whole bunch of standard ways I approach that, right? Now, I could take that way that I operate, all of those processes, right? And in the cloud, and I could also do this on-prem, but it's easier to do in the cloud. I could look at the cloud and say, wow, I could automate all of these processes, right? But what that's going to take me, you know, we do this all the time. We try to do cost estimates for those things to the best of our abilities. And we usually turn around anywhere from $1 to $10 million of effort to automate a, a traditional kind of commercial off-the-shelf piece of software in the cloud. And this isn't some kind of like scare tactic. This is like well thought out, broken down. We've done this enough. This is not as complex as you would think, right? We we have done this before, and this is this is typically what it takes. And sure, there's a little bit of padding in there to give you you know some conservative estimate. But the point is, is once you say that to them, that that's going to cost that much just for the cost of entry, and then on top of that, this is how much it's going to cost to actually run this workload on there. And usually, it's either about the same or a little bit more. They can't come back to their business and say, "I can justify this," because you can't, right? You cannot justify it. Um, because the business is going to say, I don't want to spend $10 million so that you can upgrade my super standard back office system that I get all the, you know, I don't have a lot of like inventory in the terms of feature enhancements for that system. So the fact that you can now deploy these things faster, I cannot tie it to any, you know, real market share or additional revenue stream or something that would say like, I want to spend that $10 million to do all that. Unfortunately, there is a lot of, um, partners and the cloud providers love it because, you know, I mean, once you're there, good luck getting out, right? It's it's like there's you've just made a huge investment. Um, they try to make it look easy to get started, right? And so you kind of get into this local optimum, you know, mindset where you're like, oh, man, I could just automate this one thing. So, okay, you know what? I'm going to move all this stuff over here, and this is what cloud is all about. And then the next thing you know, you're spending way too much per month. You, you realize that to actually do this right, it's going to cost way too much and everyone's kind of in a bad spot. So that's where it's like, you know, you can't cost justify that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, sorry, just wanted to, to tie this up um, or tie my thought up around that was I think we still need to be thinking about ROI, even to like what you were just talking about, Bradley. Um, we just likely are doing it differently. And this ties back into what Jeff was talking about with with product alignment. And really, I was thinking about just how quickly can you be experimenting with things? Um, even going back to your sushi analogy, right? Like if we don't know what the right type of sushi is, it's in our best interest to be paying a higher. We we accept that there's a lot of waste potentially in this, but because we don't know what the outcome is going to be, we want to be able to experiment more quickly with this. And so for a, a DevOps mindset, it's how can we help the the IT teams or even the business actually run more experiments more frequently to to, to validate the things that they're going after, um, and that's the ROI portion of some of this. Is hey, we're taking our our concept of cash of every experiment from six months to six days. Like there's a tremendous amount of value inside of that, or whatever whatever the justification mm -hmm. is. So I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like ROI is still part of the equation. You just talk about it differently now. Yeah, I think the I like this question. It's from Teresa Torrance's um, Opportunity Tree. Um, you just ask the question when somebody says, well, I want to go to the cloud or I want this. You'd be like, well, what would it look like if we were in the cloud? Um, what would be the benefits that we would see? You know, or, or, you know, why would it be such a great thing? And then they say, well, we would be able, we would operate at a lower cost and we would be able to respond to change much faster. Okay, so you want lower cost responding to change much faster. How could we measure that? And we figure that out. And then we start thinking, well, what other options do we have to do that? And what are those cheaper experiments maybe that Jeff was talking about? Like, hey, there's some little things here or there that we could do. Maybe we don't have to go all to the cloud. Maybe this piece does and that piece doesn't. And, and you start to kind of figure out where that, where to draw those lines once you raise it up a level and, and get into the outcomes. And then you start figuring out how you could come up with different opportunities or different experiments to run. Yeah, and and I guess you know I'm in the business right to kind of give them some of the answers initially, right? Based on my experience, and I think if you were to bubble this up and make it more simple, what what does it mean to an IT leader? Well, it means that if you need to do, you're being asked to build strategic applications, right? Know that it's likely that your infrastructure and operations team, they're the current way, the current things that they value the most, right? Uh, unit cost, efficiency metrics, the things we just talked about. Those things are not going to be the same things that you value as number one for the teams who want to build the strategic applications that your business is asking for, 
right? And so if the first thing you do is ask that organization to go figure it out, they're going to be have a tendency to try to solve it with the way that they currently do things. And that's not going to end up in, in a good spot. Additionally, the things that they currently do, they need to keep doing for the foreseeable future. The data center isn't going anywhere. The mainframe's still there. Like I'll give you example over example. You know, there are some things they can continue to enhance about how they operate because of how they value the things we just talked about, uh, such as using SaaS, introducing automation when it comes to highly repetitive tasks and other things. But separate those things out from the business needs you to build strategic applications so that they can be competitive again, especially in these big enterprises where that's like, you know, digital transformation is always number one, right? Um, and know that you probably don't have much of an operating model for especially infrastructure and ops for handling those things, right? And that's where you need to invest your time in developing new processes, looking at new technologies like AWS, Azure, et cetera, um, and new team structures and, and skills, right? Um, and, and that's where you apply all that change. Uh, and if the first thing you do is try to apply all that change to your data center world or the things that are going on there, they don't care about the same things. And so you're really going to get in uh, to some bad spots as a leader. And a lot of time that mm -hmm. leads to failed initiatives, overspend, bad choices, right? And so if you understand that that's the operating model, one side, and this is kind of where I go back to the two terms, one side is very efficiency focused. And the other side that you don't have, you might have an app dev. App dev has kind of figured some of this stuff out, but on infrastructure and ops, they haven't figured these processes out. The number one thing they're going to care about is time to market, right? And that's what you need to build processes and, and skills and people around. Uh, and I think that when you do that and you explain it that way, then there's kind of this aha moment. Right? Yeah. And I think it's not just um, leaders understanding it, but it's everybody in the organization understanding what you're optimizing for. So they can make micro decisions aligned around that optimizing goal. And it's got to be communicated seven times seven. Like, I mean, it's got to just be over and over again. This is what we're optimizing for here. Here's what we're doing here. So people continue to align their micro decisions around that optimization goal. Yeah. And you, you even talked about it literally just in the story you were telling Bradley was, you know, it, it's not the, uh, the data setter team and what their goal is. It's the end to end goal of how, how are we measuring that? And I, I feel like, again, just beating a dead horse, but like that, that's power. The part of the power of the EBM stuff is measuring at the right level so that, and then to what Jeff was just saying, great, now everybody's aligned on really what are we after, right? It's not about the data center and them optimizing whatever they're going after. It's about overall, whether, you know, EBM, OKRs, whatever, but like, how are we taking a look at a, at a little bit higher level of all of the little areas in our organization and aligning them to optimize for one thing, which customer delight, time to market, whatever that might be, but we've got clear alignment so that when I'm on the data center team, I know what decisions I should be making and optimizing, just like Jeff was talking about with that clarity. Yep, couldn't said it better. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good end of that that question where we're talking about efficiency and effectiveness. I, yeah, that was question number one. That, that was good. Question number one. That was pretty good. I do have something for you, though. Like, I get this a lot. It's the holiday season. You're, you're around a lot of family, maybe people that you don't see all the time. And they're like, so explain to me what you do again. Like, <clears throat> you fix computers, right? And I'm like, no, not really at all. Um, and so I try to explain it to them. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you guys explain that to people that maybe aren't in the product development space at all? Maybe they're more, they've been in manufacturing, they've been in, you know, more traditional um, type roles. Um, how do you explain what we actually do um, to those types of people? Yeah, I think it, it might sound, you'll hear some repetitiveness into what I just talked about, but um Funny enough, actually, I still have family here, right? So, like, uh, my relatives are still here. And actually, last night, uh, my father-in-law came up from um, the Carolinas, and so he went and stopped at a bunch of bourbon places. So, of course, we were drinking bourbon, and he's asking me for, you know, what what it is, what it is I do again, <laughs> you know, and it's all good, right? I, I don't like talking about it. Um, and what I tried to explain to him was, you know, these large enterprises. This specifically is for kind of myself and, and break free, right? These large enterprises right, are actively looking to build awesome software that generates income, right, for them, generates revenue. And they haven't done that for a long time, many of them. I mean, obviously some of them in pockets have, but a lot of them aren't very good at writing software. 
And so there's been an effort over the last 10 years, and it's going to continue for a while, uh, to figure out how to get really good at writing software. And, and that could be data, that could be you know all the hot stuff we hear about, but fundamentally building things that generate unique revenue streams and, and gains market share or keeps us as a viable company. And that because they really weren't built to do that, right? They need companies like ours to help them, you know, make that shift in, in an effective way, assuming they need to do it fast, right? They probably could make this shift by themselves, but it's usually pretty scary. And, you know, it's nice to have kind of a guide to help you, um, you know, kind of shelter you along along the path, especially if you've done it before or have especially experience in just making different types of changes, right? So, you know, for us, when I talk about our company, right? Well, this is, you know, Break Free has now been around for almost five years. Um, you know, this isn't our first rodeo in terms of leadership, in terms of building a company that's helping infrastructure and ops rethink how they operate. We did the same thing when virtual machines came out because there was a whole bunch of new people and process and tools that happened then. So being good at change, right, is what my company is is good at. And right now we're focused on helping a portion of the big enterprises figure out how to write software better. Um, and usually then I get, and actually when I say that, I'm surprised at how, I mean, people get this these days, right? They have phones, right? They work in the enterprise a lot of times, even if they don't work in IT and they go, yeah, you know, like, you know, my email sucks or, you know, like whatever it is, like we definitely need to get, and I said, yeah, if you think your internal systems suck, like, trust me, the things that they're building for their customers probably suck too. And so they, they need to, you know, and if you think about how much better something like Netflix is versus, you know, the cable provider, it's like that constant conflict of not being good at software and someone coming and disrupting. And the fact is you're still the enterprise, you have lots of money, you need to figure out how to do this. And that's what we do, right? We figure out and we focus on one specific area. So that's usually what I tell them and they're nodding their head and understanding. Uh, actually, it was funny enough, uh, like um, my father-in-law goes, oh yeah, so it's like, you know, if like he was using uh, Weight Watchers as an example, right? He's like, mm -hmm. I just got all these emails from this new like weight loss company like Noom or Nom or something like that. And um, it's way better and than like the Weight Watchers stuff I was doing. And so I wanted to switch to that. And I couldn't find anything on Weight Watchers about how they were going to improve to be like that. And I said, yeah, that's that's the problem, right? Like Weight Watchers probably needs to get better at software development um, where you know, this new startup, you know, is much better at it, right, in terms of how they engage and, and, and write things. And I said, imagine that played a thousand times over in the enterprise for every little area of it, right, whether it's like some piece of banking software or, um, you know, some specific internal function that's always been manual. If they could build software to automate it, they could suddenly have, you know, a comp competitive advantage and then they could sell that to their companies they compete with. You know, there's a whole bunch of use cases. And so that's usually where I get lots of, yeah, oh, I get this. So it's pretty easy then, huh? Yeah, yeah oh, yeah. Super simple. <laughs> How about you, Jeff? What do you what do you tell people when they ask you that same question? I I honestly haven't figured out a good response to this. Um, I still fumble. It's kind of embarrassing that I, that I don't have it. But uh, I'll probably honestly just steal yours at some point because I know yours is ready to go. So. How how well, do you explain it? I like yours. The other day we were this is a while ago, months ago. Maybe we were talking about it. Of like, we're really like organizational coaches or advisor. So just like a sports team has a coach, you you want to do a fitness goal like Bradley was talking about before. If you're doing it on your own, it's going to be really hard. And it, sometimes it's hard because you don't know what to do. Sometimes it's hard because you have no one holding you accountable. Sometimes it's hard because, I don't know, pick a reason, right? Like it's just, you've never done it before. And so to do something different um, is a hard thing. And so you just kind of plateau. Well, what we do is we come in and we say, well, we've seen this at a lot of different organizations and and we're, we would say this has worked really well if you want to optimize for this. This has worked really well if you optimize for this. And here's how maybe we can change things so that you get the results you want. And so we're not actually doing a lot of the work. Like I'm not fixing the computer. I'm not usually writing you know, any programs that are that you would use. I'm just helping them figure out ways that they can do it by themselves. And so in a better, uh, more effective way, so that they know that they're delivering value. And so I, I've kind of changed my response over the years too, because I think people get the coach analogy and like the personal trainer for an organization kind of analogy. Um, they still don't quite get exactly what I do day to day. And then I've got to get into that a little bit more. So I'm like, you know, there's training, there's coaching, there's working with, you know, leaders, there's working with people that are coding, there's, you know, it's all over the organization. It's, it's everywhere. 
And they're like, so you just, so my kids give me this too. They're cause they see my drawings and I'm not a very good artist. And they're like, dad, they pay you to draw like that. That's all I got to do. Like, and I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I'm like, it's how you get the point across. There's teaching, there's other things. Um, and so they laugh at me, but um, especially some of my brothers, they, they give me a hard time. Cause like one of them's a really good artist and he's like, I can't believe you draw in front of people like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> So what, one of the questions that I wanted to ask, and it's it's awesome having uh, a, a DevOps expert. I, I keep saying DevOps. Is that what you go by, Bradley? Like, Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a term that enough people need help with that I'd be happy if that's what's associated. <laughs> so yeah, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So uh, I, w- I was curious if either of you two uh, have read the Unicorn Project yet. I have not. I have not. Um, obviously read the first one, but have not read the new one. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to catch up after you, after you two read it, um, to get your thoughts on it. Um, the, without going too far into it, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I'm a fan. I don't know if either of you two ever read like Ender's Game or, uh, Ender's Shadow sci-fi fans. Okay. Uh, Ender's Game I've read, but not Ender's Shadow. So, Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow are the same story, but told from different perspectives. So one is from Ender, one is from Bean, um, two kind of major characters. That That's essentially what Gene Kim did with the Unicorn Project, is he took the Phoenix Project, which was told from, I think Bill is the, the main character in there, and now it's telling it from Maxine, who is essentially the DevOps expert, or comes to be the DevOps, DevOps expert. And so it's the same timeline, all the same things are happening, but like, oh, you find out what Brent was doing the whole time when he wasn't allowed to be touching the main system in the Phoenix project. And um, th- there were some kind of cool things about it. But like I said, I'll, I'll save a, an in-depth conversation around it in- until you two read it. Um, but what I found interesting was a lot of the things, Bradley, that you were even talking about um, were definitely things that were brought up. And it, so you, your quote um, whether you butchered it or not, something to the effect of if it's someone else's front office, it shouldn't be our back office, I think was was how you how you phrased it. Um, but he, uh, Gene Kim, the author, articulates it very, very similarly as in context versus core. Like if this is your core business that your customers actually care about, those are things you should be investing in your context, which is like your HR uh, system, right? Like no customers coming to buy your HR system. Why are you investing time and dollars into building an HR system? Go get that off the shelf, right? Um, So very much in line with what you were talking about. And then he's got his five ideals that um, are are good. Um, But even with those, was hearing a lot of similarities in the things that you were talking about, Bradley. So anyway, we'll, we'll shelf that for right now, but the next time you're on, cause now we've got a, a resident DevOps expert that we can pull onto the show. Nice. Um, I'd love to, to dive down a little bit deeper with some of the stuff. And I think Jeff, you, you had read Accelerate, right? Pretty yep. recently. Yeah, that was a really good book. Um, yeah. Uh, Gene Kim's one of the authors of that one as well. I, I think the four metrics that they come up with there, um, we've kind of pulled that into part of the EBM and we're talking yeah. about um, time to market. And I think that I like that there's the two of them are leading indicators and two are lagging indicators. Um, so when we look at that, it's like the leading indicators are frequency of build success and the mean time to repair. So um, those things then kind of tell you, well, your lagging, lagging indicators, your cycle time and your release frequency, like uh, those improvements you're making there. And so I, I guess I've, I, before reading that book, I had early been working with teams where they've been looking at frequency of build success and mean time to repair. And so I think, you know, starting to look at that as a leading, leading indicator to cycle time and release frequency, where usually the things I was focused on um, has been helpful uh, because I think that a lot of teams are like, well, how do I improve cycle time or the release frequency? I don't control that. That's the product owner that says when we're going to release and cycle time, there's so many other things that I have no control over. And so when we focus on those items, um, it does help them to, you know, get that faster time to market for the holistic product. So I, I like to take Bradley, have you read that book? Uh, I haven't. So I haven't been up to date on the IT. So it's the IT revolution press, right? Is the company that Gene like formed. And then they have all these books like product to uh, project to product and accelerator and all these things. Um, I haven't been as up to speed on them because so I'm, I love it, right? It, what it does to me, at least the way I think about it is it convinces 
organizations that this is the right thing to do, right? You read the Phoenix Project, you read the unit. I mean, I can see why the unicorn people would like it. It convinces you like, yeah, you know, we're, what we're doing right now isn't right. And we need to fix it. Uh, my world tends to be really focused on, okay, what is, so if you're an enterprise, you're the CIO, you're sitting there, what, what do I do tomorrow? Uh, and I think that that's where you can't write it. It's like hard to write a book about that. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think that, that, you know, for that reason, I'm not as up to date on those stuff. And honestly, it's why I read more of the military stuff. It's why I read like more of that stuff because that's like, hey, this is how we actually made this change happen. Not the observations of the good things we did while reading. There's plenty of those mm-hmm. books as well, right? Those would be more yep. like the memoirs and things like that. Um, and so I'm not, and I'm not saying that the IT revolution press doesn't come out with things that tell you how, but um, that's very much what I'm focused on. So I love it, right? I love that people are reading it. I would love to like maybe pick two or three of those books, um, and do, do an episode or two on those. I think that would be, uh, fantastic. Um, so th- that's why, right. That I just, you know, I, t- I tend to focus, like try to pull from the hows of other organizations versus the outcomes and observations of, of good organizations. I think that's a really good point too, because I see that in a lot of organizations, especially um, organizations that try to, we were just talking about this in our last episode um, where we did the Metacast joint episode. Um, and so some people try to buy like an agile transformation or DevOps off the shelf and they just want to plug it in. And a lot of times they hire these big companies to do that, right? And they're just like, well, we're going to do a hackathon. We're going to do an, these, um, we're going to let the people pick what they want to work on for a week and just like let them go. Uh, we're going to do all these really cool, empowering things. We're going to have new job descriptions for product owners and scrum masters. And we've never had these things before. And uh, you're like, okay, that's that's all great. But if if it's still very top down, so we're still very efficiency focused, we're still not focusing on value delivery and we're not getting to done increments, aren't we just missing the, the point, right? Like you can have all the good practices and these cool things that just sound awesome, right? From all these books. But if you're, you're missing the meat of why we're doing what we're doing, that stuff really doesn't matter. You know, like it sounds yeah. good in theory, but it's just, it's just the, you know, parsley on the plate that's there for looks, you know, it's not, it's not really, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't really do nothing for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's, and it's kind of goes in, not just in DevOps or in agile software development. I mean, it's even in like leadership books, et cetera. Like you see a lot of like, um, you're like, Oh, I'm a researcher at MIT. Right. And I'm looking at this, you know, computer science or this, uh, IT departments like general performance. Right. And, Oh, the high performing ones tend to be able to tell the business like how they're valuable. Right. And so I'm going to write a whole book about how you should tell the business. It was like to us, it's like, well, yeah, that's obvious. Right. But like, how do you actually build an organization that allows you to do that? And kind of based on where you're at in terms of, you know, financials versus manufacturing, you know, whatever industry you're in versus the situation you're in, there's a whole bunch of things that tell you, okay, this is the component I need to pull from right now. I need to focus on that like the processes that allow me to have the discussion with the business about the value. And that's where people like us come in, right? And say like, okay, you should not care about that hackathon right now, right? That's like the last thing. I know it's I know it's rallying the troops and you, it feels good, but it's the last thing on your prioritized list of stuff that yeah. you need to get put in place if you want to drive the actual outcomes that we're talking about here, right? Which is fundamentally business outcomes that are related, you know, and, and that's why it's like, I've seen it before where CIOs will be like, you know, yeah, we did all these things over the year, right? We had hackathons, we we did um, all day conferences, um, you know, we did a bunch of, you know, even some agile training, right? Uh, we did all this stuff, right? And they're going to the business and they're telling the business this and they're going, I, okay, you know, like I don't, that's not exciting to me, right? Like what happened to this app that I needed to get this feature out that I lost, you know, I, my competitor signed the customer up for? And they can't tie that activity in that they were doing during the year to how they've actually fixed that. And so I think that's where we can help them really make, cause like they'll soon learn, right? Like they'll get, like, I think a lot of these companies can make this transition on them on their own. It just, they're going to stub their toe a lot. Right. And yep. I'm not suggesting that they won't stub their toe if they hire me, but they're, they'll probably, it'll be much more intact uh, when they, <laughs> when they get to the other side. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of how I view all that stuff is like, yep, read it, understand it. And I'll help you kind of piece it all together in terms of how you actually need to institute these different things so you actually drive the outcome that you need uh, based on where you're at as a company. So one thing I wanted to address was in the podcast you did with Rob, you guys talked about Scrum and rugby. And I feel like as a rugby player, I need to like correct this, right? (laughs) So (laughs) 
use Scrum a lot in the game, right? It's it, it's uh, something you do, and you do it after a penalty, right? So I think we need to be careful on how many things we pull from rugby into the, I think you guys made a comparison and it was like, Oh, scrum happens, you know, uh, once in a while in the game and it's about getting together. And it's like, no, no, no you ha- you did something wrong. Right. And now you're going to smash into each other to try to determine who, who maintains possession. So I wanted to make sure everyone understood what the scrum was all about in rugby. Uh, it's the reset after a penalty. Right. Uh, and it happens all the time. Um, the other thing I wanted to do is ask you guys what you got for Christmas and what was your favorite gift. Uh, so that was something I wanted to ask because I feel like I could switch wow. the tables. Mm. Yeah. I know I didn't prep. Yeah, you go first. Sure. Um, my favorite gift was um, I went on an ice fishing trip with my dad. Um, that was, it was time. My wife gave me the time and uh, dad kind of planned it. And we went up to La- Lake of the woods, which is like right on the border of Canada and Minnesota. We stayed out on a shack, like middle of, you know, I think we were nine miles out of the lake and, you know, blizzards. I sent Jeff a text of like, here's yeah, yesterday, no here's today. Like and it's like, you can't see anything today because <laughs> it's 40 miles or winds and we got like 12 inches of snow. And uh, <laughs> like, you can't, can't see like, you know, 20 don't, feet outside the shack. So don't leave the shack. You might yeah. never come back. <laughs> exactly. Don't go. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We kept saying, don't go for any long walks, anybody today. Like you're not coming back. So, but we caught a lot of fish and it was a lot of fun. It was good quality time with my dad. So that was my favorite gift. Did you get to bring the fish back or was it? Yeah. You get to bring back, uh, you know, four walleyes and two saugers, which are just another like hybrid of a walleye. And then um, other fish, we caught these things called eel pouts. They're like a big, long snake looking fish. Looks prehistoric. They only live north in a certain parallel. I think it's the 47th parallel. And they're like really active only in the wintertime. And so they, they, they're pretty dormant in the summer. And then they just like attack everything in the uh, winter and uh, caught a couple of them. Those they are fun to pull through the ice because they're just so big and they fight so much. So it was, it was a good time. Do they taste good? They're really good, yeah. Uh, if you know how to clean them, because it's different than a normal fish. I had to watch some YouTube videos before I went up there, so I figured out how to do it. Um, but yeah, I figured it out. Got good at it after the first couple. Um, and they, like, you cook them. I cooked them in Seven Up, and then uh, like boiled them in that. They kind of almost taste like lobster, a little chewier, kind of like that. Have that kind of texture. So we we don't really do a lot of Christmassy type stuff. But I was actually talking with Jeff prior to jumping on the episode. Um, my basic my niece essentially. Um, got accepted to UW Milwaukee. Uh, she she's from India, so she actually just came up uh, the Thursday after Christmas. And then my mother-in-law is also here um, to help get her situated for the next six months. So I guess getting a niece uh, that I'm I'm a her legal guardian now. So she's gonna be staying with us for at least the next four years. So I kind of like inherited a daughter and a college bill. So. Uh, <laughs> Nice, but, but it, it yeah, it's good stuff. Like I've never, I, I joke around with people. Like they'll ask, "Oh, do you have kids?" And like, "No, I'm allergic." You know, I don't, I don't really go out for that type of stuff in my life. So it's definitely been a little bit of a, a shift, but it so far has it's been pretty awesome. So um, get to do kind of parenty type stuff. Like uh, going to be teaching how to drive a car because she's never driven a car before. So um, interesting stuff. How about you, Bradley? Well, I'm I'm not like either. I'm a huge consumer, right? So I'm all about new stuff. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I got a espresso machine. So I've I've been shaking all day, uh, like six lattes a day, kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. It's great. It's great. I would highly. I thought it was going to be. Um, so I'm I'm the only one that works in our household. So my wife stays home. We're super fortunate to be able to do that. Um, Totally support women that work. It's awesome too. Uh, this is a choice we made. But uh, anyway, so usually, like for whatever reason, she, my wife, always feels like she needs to review with me, like whatever big purchases that we're making. And so she's like, you know, I wanted to talk to you about the gift I'm going to get you. I'm like, don't do it, you know, like don't tell me. <laughs> and she still told me. Um, and I actually was like, man, I don't know. I don't know if we should spend that on on a machine. You know, that, how good can it really be? Um, but I am here to plug it and say that it's worth every dollar. It, it's like. It's awesome. All 2,000 of them. <laughs> no, no. So I, I didn't do the tooth. So uh, I'll give a shout out um, to that the Seattle Coffee Company, I think is what they're called. Um, they do a ton of awesome YouTube videos and they almost had me. Like I was almost like, all right, we've got to do the, the $2,000 rocket espresso machine. Uh, but then... I went for the like Breville. There's like, that's like a standard one. I don't know. Do you guys have espresso machines? Am I the only one without one? I, that'd be funny. But no, no. No. Okay. 
Uh, so I went with the Breville and it was only like 500 bucks and like, you know, like reasonably priced and makes great, you know, makes good enough. But I'm sure in a few years we'll be talking and I'll tell you I bought a stupidly expensive one. So. <laughs> so yeah, so I should That's be awake all the time and working all the time because of that thing. So pretty excited about it. I don't think I had anything else. So I corrected the scrum and I found out uh, what you guys wanted for that. In terms of plugs, um, would love if folks, you know, go to breakfreesolutions.com. You know, we're, we're doing a whole bunch of, like I said, I'm doing a bunch of writing projects right now. What happens in our industry is like right now, no one wants to meet with us because they're all on vacation. And so I tend to spend a lot of time writing right now and like developing ideas for upcoming blog posts and stuff like that. So lots of good stuff will be coming out over the next few months. Um, we'll have things there about like cloud native skills development, which is something I'm really passionate about. We talk a lot about this efficiency versus effectiveness stuff. Um, so that's probably the best place to like find more material on this stuff. Um, I'm not very good at LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that. So uh, but you can always reach out to me on there because I will respond. But um, if you want like more about like the way I think about the world, you know, that's where most of that stuff's coming out at, at breakfreesolutions.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll definitely have to do it again. Maybe we'll do the book episode next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.